0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And on your screen before you, you see a road sign for number 230, which of course is the way that we talk about section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, AKA that one law that everybody talks about that protects Facebook and Twitter and Google. And how does it do that? Well, it gives them a shield on the liability that they would have either for moderating their specific platforms or for the content that others provide on those platforms. So Facebook and Twitter and Google aren't responsible for those mean comments that you leave us here in virtual legality because those mean comments are your own. But as this tumultuous 2020 has proceeded and as the political Argument has escalated over that time frame. A number of politicians, including both Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the United States, have come out and said there are problems with Section 230. So it was yesterday upon which the Justice Department unveiled proposed Section 230 legislation. Now it's important to note the Department of Justice, the Justice Department as framed here, is not the legislature. They can't put this law into being. All they can do is is make their recommendations for Congress to adopt or not to adopt. And it's very unlikely that here in 2020, on the eve of election season, that Congress will act on anything of this significance, at least in respect of this topic, before or after the election. Chances are anything on this nature would be discussed by the next Congress that is seated in 2021. That being said, this does help give us a viewpoint On which the Trump administration and the Department of Justice is looking at Section 230 and what changes might come up in the future. Today, on behalf of the Trump administration, the Department of Justice sent draft legislation to Congress to reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The legislation also executes President Trump's directive from the executive order on preventing online censorship. And we're going to get to that. But first, I wanted to give a hat tip to the folks that. Actually, shared this with me. This is from S 1 at somebody foil on Twitter. Asks, is this big news? Yes, of course it is, and I'm happy to cover it in this space. I'm always very appreciative of those folks that contact me on Twitter or through DMs or in comments to these videos because I can't see everything of importance, even in the limited pop culture video game landscape, whatever it is that we might be talking about here. Uh, and so I always appreciate that. Thank you very much, at SomebodyFOIL for sharing with me that this had happened yesterday. Now, as you heard referenced in the Department of Justice's opening paragraph, this was in response to an executive order that President Donald Trump put forth at the end of May this year, an executive order that we covered in a video that you can see on your screen right now, and that will also go over at high level, just in order to give kind of the context for what we are looking at today. But importantly, first, we need to talk about CDA 230. If you aren't familiar with it, you might only know it as that thing on Twitter that people talk about that say, well, if Twitter does this thing, then they are clearly a publisher and not a platform. Or if Facebook does this thing, then they should get in trouble because they're violating the sections of 230. First of all, none of that is highly accurate. There is no definition of platform. There is no definition of publisher in here. There are things that people have taken over the course of years, since the 90s, when this law was passed and kind of interpreted in specific ways. But ultimately, what this does isn't mandate any specific behavior on the part of big tech or platform provider, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whomever. It provides extra protection to them. If they follow some baseline guidelines. And as we've talked about in this space, I agree with both Biden and Trump that 230 is in need of reform. It doesn't perform what its function is supposed to be as described by Congress. Congress said when they passed this law that they find the following. The internet and other interactive computer services represent an extraordinary advance in the availability of educational informational resources to the United States citizenry. The Internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and myriad avenues for intellectual activity. The Internet and other interactive computer services have flourished with a minimum of government regulation, and so it is the policy of the United States to promote the continued development of the Internet, to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the Internet and these services unfettered by regulation to encourage the development of technologies, which maximize user control, to remove disincentives for the development and utilization of blocking and filtering technologies, and to ensure the vigorous enforcement of federal criminal laws. Now, those last three paragraphs are important context historically for this law. This was put forth in order to keep bad images and bad content from primarily children, this was designed to backstop the fact that you should have parental controls on your website and you don't get in trouble for moderating that website and getting rid of things that parents or children or other specific populaces wouldn't like to see on the internet. Because otherwise, you could get in trouble for moderating. You could potentially run a file of constitutional prescriptions on your behavior. And or you could get in trouble for not moderating and would be liable for what you leave on your platform. And so this law was designed to cover really both instances. So as it stands right now, paragraph C1 says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service. You should read that as Twitter or Facebook or YouTube shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another. And the defined term here is information content provider. So as a baseline rule, no other kind of restrictions placed on this paragraph. If you are YouTube, you won't be treated as the publisher or speaker of information that appears on your platform. Now, we'll see in the definition as we get to it that that actually has some leeway. It's how you get into these publisher versus platform fights on Twitter and and various other places, especially if there aren't lawyers involved in the conversation. But the ultimate baseline rule is YouTube isn't responsible for those comments you leave on virtual legality videos. Next, in C2... No provider or user of an interactive computer service, again, think YouTube, think Facebook, think Twitter, shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be, that YouTube has determined to be, on its own, subjectively, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, we can all acknowledge that almost everything there is constitutionally protected. You're allowed to say what you want to say, but YouTube and Facebook and Twitter don't have to keep it up as of right now if they determine, if they consider it to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, or importantly, otherwise objectionable. Now, that phrase has always been very, very broad. It's one of those phrases that I have pointed out probably needs to be taken a look at because... What's uh, objectionable to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter might not be objectionable to anyone else. And so should they get the government's protection, this kind of special protection to avoid liability if they are otherwise just saying, hey, I don't like Republicans or on the flip side, I don't like Democrats. And so those are objectionable to me. I'm getting rid of them. What should be the government's position in that kind of consideration? And certainly, when you get to the bottom here, if they are only moderating, if you imagine a YouTube or a Twitter in which they're just getting rid of every, let's say, progressive viewpoint, they've just decided, you know what? We like conservative thought. We're getting rid of all the progressive viewpoints. We're getting rid of all of that uh, action items. We're getting rid of all that language. Could, based on these definitions, could you treat Twitter as an information content provider, because as defined here, it means any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through that platform. So one of the reasons this fight exists right now is this notion that if Twitter just said, hey, we're getting rid of all of this line of political thought, should they be potentially liable for anything that remains on their service? Because like a sculptor. They have chiseled away what they don't want, and the remainder is really what they are publishing, and that has been kind of an open question. I don't think it's a great argument, especially given the kind of breadth of language in paragraph C1, where it's clear that the intent of Congress is, no, you won't be liable for what appears on your platform, but people have made the argument, and it's one of those areas that I think is important to kind of discuss. Because right now, the liability shield allows moderation for things that you find objectionable with no contours around that. There's no tie to legality. There's no tie even to obscenity. It's anything you might find objectionable for any reason. Maybe you just hate spiders and you at Twitter are getting rid of anything that remotely references spiders or spider pictures or anything that maybe even makes you think of spiders, particularly evocative shadows or or puppets. And if you found that objection, well, we can just get rid of it. Now, certainly from a free market standpoint, you say, sure, you run the platform. But maybe when we get into those more contentious areas like politics, like things that actually affect policy, like election law, right? Twitter is currently operating under a premise that you can't challenge the functionality of who's collecting votes in the United States, because if you do, that will be deemed to be electioneering. That'll be deemed problematic for, for Twitter's terms and conditions, which is all well and good, except if there are actual material problems at any of those levels. Those are not the kinds of things that Twitter should be adjudicating as to whether or not the claims are truthful or not. But Twitter is going to be doing that. It's going to get even more contentious as the election rolls forward. And so back in May, President Trump put out an executive order. He said, look, Twitter now selectively decides to place a warning label on certain tweets in a manner that clearly reflects political bias. And this was a a result of them putting, I believe, a warning on something that Trump said about mail-in voting and potentially voter fraud in the election. And Twitter put this kind of note on there. It might have been a coronavirus tweet. They've done it enough since this executive order went out now that I don't know that it's exactly right that they started with voting, but I think that is, in fact, what they'd started with. And so... President Trump says that clearly reflects political bias, and ultimately, I've got a problem with that. He says, immunity should not extend beyond its text and purpose, the immunity provided in CDA 230. 230C, that's what we looked at, paragraphs one and two, was designed to address early court decisions, holding that if an online platform restricted access to some content posted by others, it would thereby become a publisher of all the content posted on its site for purposes of torts such as defamation, that kind of chisel approach, right? And I would argue that 230 doesn't do a great job of actually specifically avoiding that liability because at the outer extremis of behavior, you can imagine a Twitter that only allows the political messages that it likes and then... The chisel effect probably should say Twitter is effectively a publisher. If we imagine that it eliminated 90% of its tweets and the 10% that remain were essentially certified by Twitter, that's the kind of thing where you look at it and you say, well, maybe they should be liable as a publisher for those actions. But between we cut off 90% and we cut off 9% or 0.9% is this muddy middle. But President Trump says we need to start answering these questions. In particular, subparagraph C2, which talks about moderation, expressly addresses protections from civil liability on account of good faith decisions. It is the policy of the United States to ensure that this provision is not distorted to provide liability protection for online platforms that instead engage in deceptive or pretextual actions, often contrary to their stated terms of service, which we will see is one of the better points of. I think that this proposed law modification from the Department of Justice actually puts forth to stifle viewpoints with which they disagree. So ultimately, one of the things that the president has said here is we don't want false advertising. If Twitter wants to kill Republican commentary or Democratic commentary or anything along those lines, they should put that in their terms of service. It should be writ large, bright and clear on the board for everybody to see, and then people can adjudge. Whether or not they still want to use that service, that that is an important thing for Twitter to be bound to, to say, hey, we're not going to act effectively to use government phrasing arbitrarily and capriciously in accordance with our terms of service. To advance the policy described above, all executive departments and agencies should ensure that their application of 230C properly reflects the narrow purpose of the section and takes all appropriate actions in this regard. In addition, within 60 days of this order, so from the end of May to the end of July the secretary of commerce in consultation with the attorney general and acting through the national telecommunications and information administration shall file a petition for rulemaking with the federal communications commission. That's four separate bodies really, but you know, it's government for you. And they will do things that propose regulations to clarify how section 230 works, the conditions under which an action restricting access should not be seen to be taken in good faith, including deception, pretext, failure to give adequate notice, other proposed regulations that they might make. The Department of Justice shall review viewpoint based speech restrictions. It is the policy of the United States that large online platforms should not restrict protected speech. The FTC shall consider taking action based on deceptive acts or practices. The Attorney General shall establish a working group to see if state laws should apply. And then finally the attorney general shall develop a proposal for federal legislation that would be useful to promote the policy objectives of this order. So when you go and you look at this first paragraph and says the legislation also executes President Trump's directive, that's what it is referring to. That section six of this executive order says the attorney general, the Department of Justice, shall propose federal legislation. And he says this is in response to that so now, as of the end of May to the end of September, about four months later, they have put together a legal proposal. Or, as Attorney General William P. Barr says, for too long, Section 230 has provided a shield for online platforms to operate with impunity, ensuring that the internet is a safe but also vibrant, open, and competitive environment is vitally important to America. We therefore urge Congress to make these necessary reforms to Section 230 and begin to hold online platforms accountable both when they unlawfully censor speech and when they knowingly facilitate criminal activity online. Now, that was something that was kind of referenced in the executive order. It is also what I would consider to be kind of an umbrella to provide cover for these changes, right? They aim a lot of these changes at, we're going to stop terrorism, or we're going to stop trafficking, or we're going to stop cyber harassment. And that's a kind of important piece of the puzzle here to give that cover to folks that are reporting on these things and say, well, that's what the primary aim is. And indeed, it's one of the primary aims, but the actual really small language changes, one word here or there, is where the change actually lives, as we will see in just a second. The department's proposal is an important step in reforming Section 230 to further its original goal, providing liability protection to encourage good behavior online, said Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey A. Rosen. The proposal makes clear that when interactive computer services willfully distribute illegal material or moderate content in bad faith, it's that second part that is likely to be the more contentious, section 230 should not shield them from the consequences of their action. Now they want to promote transparency and open discourse. First, the draft legislation has a series of reforms to promote transparency and open discourse and ensure that platforms are fairer to the public when when removing lawful speech from their services. The current interpretations of Section 230 have enabled online platforms to hide behind the immunity, to censor lawful speech. In fact, as we just saw in the statute, it specifically says you can moderate even if it's constitutionally protected speech. So we've got an issue here going forward, and we'll see it addressed in the language that they propose. And inconsistent with their own terms of service, which I think is a better argument on the part of the attorney general. To remedy this, the department's legislative proposal revises and clarifies the existing language of Section 230 and replaces vague terms that may be used to shield arbitrary content moderation decisions with more concrete language that gives greater guidance to platforms, users, and courts. It does and it doesn't. The legislative proposal also adds language to the definition of information content provider to clarify when platforms should be responsible for speech that they affirmatively and substantially or substantively contribute to or modify. In other words, when they add a tag to President Trump's tweets, they should be potentially liable for what they do there. And it's hard to disagree with that notion once they're taking an active role in it. But it's also hard to ignore the specificity at which this is aimed in respect of Twitter and the President Trump administration. They also say seek to address illicit activity online. This is not likely to be as controversial. The second category of amendments is aimed at incentivizing platforms to address the growing amount of illicit content online. Section 230 immunity is meant to incentivize and protect online good Samaritans. Platforms that purposefully solicit and facilitate harmful criminal activity, in effect, online bad Samaritans, okay, should not receive the benefit of this immunity. The department also proposes to more clearly carve out federal civil enforcement actions from Section 230. This one might be an issue. Although federal criminal prosecutions have always been outside the scope of Section 230 immunity, online crime is a serious and growing problem, and there is no justification for blocking the federal government from civil enforcement on behalf of American citizens. Civil enforcement being when the government sues you on a civil basis for damages usually, and not as a criminal enforcement action. This isn't seeking to imprison somebody or to invoke even criminal fines. This is saying I, the federal government, or this people, this body that I'm representing for this purpose have been damaged in some way. And now we can seek to enforce the federal laws on a civil basis. That would include a vast amount of federal legislation, a vast amount of rules, and would increase the scope of the exemption, To the applicability of Section 230 significantly. And so you might get a fight about this. Illicit activity, criminal activity, that's one thing. Adding on that this should apply to all civil activity, which of course is a category that can be broadened by any Congress at any time, presents a kind of existential liability for a lot of these big tech platforms. I would expect this kind of thing to be fought against pretty significantly. Finally, the department proposes carving out certain categories of civil claims that are far outside of Section 230's core objective, including offenses involving child sexual abuse, terrorism, and cyber stalking. Again, these are easy wins. You pepper those in if you're the Department of Justice to make sure that you can justify a reform at some level just on its own premises. And then we'll start talking about liability for these various platforms on the stuff that maybe isn't something that everybody can agree on quite so specifically. So with that being said, that's the overview. That's kind of the cover letter that the Department of Justice put out there. It's a press release. I, in virtual legality, and I know you like it too, like to go to the source material. And so we're going to look at what the Department of Justice actually proposed to change, right? So we've got right now paragraph C1. This is called the Ramsire Draft Legislative Reforms. Uh, Ramsire isn't otherwise cited, I don't believe, in the cover letters. It might be in the cover letter directly made to Vice President Pence. Uh, But he appears to be someone that works at the Department of Justice and put forth this draft material. So we've got the first paragraph. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That's all that exists in the current statute. That's why it's in black and it's not in red. They would propose to add two more paragraphs. First, they would say that that baseline rule, subparagraph A, as described here, shall not apply to any decision, agreement, or action by a provider or user of an interactive computer service, YouTube, to restrict access to or availability of material provided by another information content provider. Any applicable immunity for such conduct shall be provided solely by paragraph two of this subsection. So they want to divide this law more clearly, right? Right now, paragraph C1A, as they describe it, says broadly, you are not responsible for the content of another. They want to separate that from the moderation discussion. They want to say, okay, we're adding a paragraph that says, but if we're talking about moderation, you're bounced into subparagraph number two. Or, helpfully, the Department of Justice has added kind of summary items here, section by section, as they call it. And they say, they would propose to revise C1 to include a new subparagraph B to make clear that decisions to remove or restrict access to material are governed solely by C2. If you recall that executive order, this is one of those things that the president was focused on, that C1 and C2 kind of interact, but kind of don't. They want to add this clarity. So that's that's all well and good. There's not really a problem with that until you get to their new paragraph C. For purposes of subparagraph A, that broad protection, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be deemed a publisher or speaker for all other information on its service provided by another information content provider solely on account of actions voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of specific material that the provider or user has an objective reasonable belief violates its terms of service or use. So understand what they did here. They had a paragraph at the top that says broadly, if you're YouTube, you're not responsible for those comments on virtual legality. And then it said... However, if you're moderating things, we are going to kick you down into paragraph two, so this doesn't apply to you. And then, however, however, if you are actually moderating based on your terms of service, this still does apply to you. And so this is, to be honest, and I, I hate to say this, right? I don't like to disparage colleagues' work. I'm sure a lot of work was put into this kind of thing. This is terrible drafting. This is essentially an exemption, and then an exemption to the exemption in a way that you had a very clear rule to start out with. That is no longer clear. Look, I agree with what they're trying to do in paragraph C, which is to say, we're gonna change your shield from liability down below, but we want to give you some new protection from liability. And what this says is that, forget all the rest of this language, YouTube will not be responsible for moderating on an objective belief that something violates its terms of service. Now understand this is very broad. Right, Twitter or YouTube or Facebook could say no Democrats, no Republicans, no spiders, whatever it is that they want, as long as they write it in their terms of service or use, this says that you don't lose your liability shield just for doing that. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker, provided your moderation was based on your terms of service or use. Now, the proper way to draft this, Again, in my opinion, I know some people come to my comments and say, this is all your opinion. That's all I can ever offer. But the proper way to draft this would be to say, okay, paragraph B is fine right here. It doesn't apply to moderation. And then to take this moderation paragraph and put it down here. If you want to kick everybody down to paragraph two to talk about moderation, this belongs discussing moderation. Now let's talk about what they did with respect to moderation. This is important stuff. So. They say no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith, which is now a defined term in this statute. We'll get to that in just a second. To restrict access to or availability of material to moderate that the provider or user has an objectively reasonable belief is. Now, you'll note a problem in this red line, right? The red line is supposed to show what is being removed like here or otherwise objectionable. They didn't actually do that. They replaced a phrase. Does anybody remember what that phrase is? Well, if we go back to paragraph two, we can see that it used to say, it's any material that the provider or user considers to be, and that has now been replaced with, has an objectively reasonable belief is. Now, what does that mean in the law? Considers to be means that it lives at YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, that if they believe it to be obscene, then, then they win. They get this civil liability protection. Here, it's as an objectively reasonable belief. That means like if somebody wanted to bring a lawsuit against one of these platforms, they would have to go through the process of showing that a reasonable third party would believe it to be obscene. So if Facebook just takes, let's say, a perfectly innocent picture of a basketball game and strips it off of its system because it's obscene, and that's what they tell people, and then somebody could come and say that's clearly not obscene it's not just up to you so that increases the exposure risk to the big tech platforms now i don't think that's an unwarranted increase in exposure i don't think subjectivity on these fronts is something that we necessarily have to have in this law but we have to note that it's changing that the department of justice would seek to have it changed and then They would say you have an objectively reasonable belief that something is obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, or excessively violent, or they've added some categories. Promoting terrorism or violent extremism, harassing, promoting self-harm, or unlawful. They also got rid of or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Now, there's a couple of things happening here, which again are problems in drafting, right? You've added as a category that you can get rid of something that's unlawful, Whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, those don't really line up. Something really can't be constitutionally protected if it is unlawful, unless you want to really get deep into virtual legality and have videos about whether something is actually statutorily unconstitutional, and whether or not Facebook can look at something that they think might be unconstitutional and still strip it off their platform. Ah, we get really, really deep here. It's just bad drafting. The other component of this, as we mentioned above, the reason that we came down here is because paragraph C talks about violations of terms of use being something that will be allowed effectively under this paragraph A concept, that should go here because all of this language matches up and it replaces otherwise objectionable, right? Otherwise objectionable, the issue with it, the issue that I've had with it, the issue that others have had with it is that it just provides this amorphous power that you really can't fight. If you've got a subjective belief that something is objectionable, how do I fight that in a court of law? It's impossible. Now you've got a third-party reasonable belief standard, which I think is probably better and probably more justified for this broad shield of liability. But you've also provided that if you are comporting on that objective basis with your terms of service, you can moderate. So what this ultimately is about here, and I think this is something that is good, even if you disagree with the administration or this overall thrust, is transparency. Look, Twitter is a its own party, it's its own entity. It doesn't owe you something necessarily. It certainly doesn't have to abide by your constitutional rights, but if it wants to get shielded from liability, which is a special protection here afforded by the law, it has to put forth language in its terms of service that people can understand and the basis on which it will moderate on its platform. I don't really think that folks can object to that very strongly, although I'll be interested to hear from you in the comments to this video if you have your own thoughts On this specific concept, of course, this belongs here and should replace otherwise objectionable. And I think in a decent way, the biggest item that people are going to debate over here, I think really is going to be whether it should be a subjective standard or an objective standard. And we can see that already with what the Department of Justice has said about what they're doing, right? They say we're adding this new paragraph to clarify content moderation decisions Made in good faith, consistent with terms of service. Do not render a platform, a speaker, or publisher for all other third-party content. And we want to replace the vague term otherwise objectionable with these categories. Terrorism, violent extremism, self-harm, and unlawful. Which is all well and good, but ultimately the fight is going to be over objectivity versus subjectivity. Then we get into the definition of good faith. So we have to skip to the bottom here. We have to skip a few things that they added to talk about what they did. Now, first of all, I would say... When you make a change like this, you should probably capitalize good faith to indicate to lawyers and other people that are trying to comply with the law that you've got a defined term here, or as defined below in parentheses. Those kinds of things are good changes. Otherwise, a lowercase in good faith will be interpreted by most that are just kind of skimming through this as common law interpretations of what good faith means. And here they actually have specific requirements. So they've added this paragraph. They say, to restrict access to or availability of specific material in good faith, An interactive computer service provider must have four things, have publicly available terms of service or use that state plainly and with particularity the criteria the service provider employs in its content moderation practices. Now, I think that's a good thing. This is going for transparency. I do see as a lawyer a couple of issues, right? There are going to be problems from the Facebooks and YouTubes of the world. What does it mean to say something plainly and with particularity? right? If we have to now identify every possible reason that we could moderate something with particularity, then ordinarily that would be a hundred page document. Except now I have to state it plainly for anybody to read. We're going to need some more guidance, Department of Justice, if this were to go through, right? If Congress were to pass this, the very first thing that big tech would ask for is say, we need an understanding of what these terms of service need to say. We need regulations on this front so that we can understand what we need to do to comport with it. Because plainly and particularity, are essentially diametrically opposed on a question like this, where we now have to say all of the various reasons why we need to moderate. In addition to having those terms of service that are supposed to be readable and to talk about specific moderation decisions, we need to restrict access to or availability of material, uh, material consistent with those terms of service or use. We need to moderate based on what we just published. And with any official representations or disclosures regarding the service provider's content moderation practices. So anything we say outside of the terms of service, if we go on a forum and say, oh, no, you'd be fine to post this. We can't kill it later without potentially losing our civil liability protection or criminal liability in in this case as well. Not restrict access to or availability of material on deceptive or pretextual grounds or apply its terms of service or use to restrict access to or availability of material that is similarly situated to material that the provider intentionally declines to restrict. Okay, so now we got bigger issues, right? So we have to post something publicly. We have to follow the rules that we posted publicly. And basically, we can't treat like situations differently as long as it's not intentionally, right? We can still say we didn't know about something. But if we know about something, if somebody complains about something that's exactly the same, We can't intentionally decline to restrict it. So if our terms of service say no politics of this specific type and we moderate this one and then somebody else complains about something else, probably on the other side of the political spectrum, we could potentially get in trouble if the federal government or court system after the fact decides that we treated like situations differently. Again, the big problem for big tech here is really the specificity kind of concept Transparency is good, but when will this kind of thing apply, right? No tweet or comment is identical. So that's why you see similarly situated as the phraseology used here. And that's pretty good from a lawyer's point of view, but it still doesn't necessarily give that kind of confidence and certainty that if you're YouTube or Facebook, you would want in terms of moderating these kinds of things. It's again, one of those areas where, You probably would ask for additional regulations. If you were looking at this law, you'd probably ask for, at bare minimum, a requirement that some folks, whichever agency you would want to give it to, will put forth regulations on these kinds of questions. Finally, the last requirement to operating in good faith is that you will supply the provider of the material you just moderated with notice describing with particularity the factual basis for the restriction, why you moderated them and an opportunity to respond to you with some exceptions. If law enforcement asks that you don't make a notice, if you have risk of terrorism, criminal activity, or you think somebody might cause harm on that notice, you don't have to give it. But otherwise, you have to have rules that are publicly knowable and available. You have to follow those rules. You can't treat similar situations differently. And you have to give a reasonable amount of notice from someone that you don't necessarily have to listen to. There's not an obligation here to change your decision. They just have to have a meaningful opportunity to respond. So those are the requirements for good faith. I think outside of law, outside of virtual legality, I think the spirit of them is fine. I think it should be in everybody's best interest to have these platforms have terms of service that are readable by everyone, to follow those terms of service, and to potentially lose special powers from the federal government if they don't follow those kinds of things. And one of the things that I like about this proposal from the Department of Justice is that they don't say that these terms of service have to say anything in particular, right? One of the worries here, if you looked at the executive order, if you looked at the draft executive order that we also did a video on, was whether or not the executive branch, the government in general, would be going forward and mandating certain provisions in the Twitter terms of service or the Facebook or the YouTube terms of service. This doesn't really do this. This actually gives a fairly broad right to moderate as long as you have a belief that something violates your terms of service. So if you write that broadly enough, with particularity, of course, to operate in good faith, then you can make any moderation decision you want. And in a perfect world, people would just know that YouTube hates Democrats or Republicans or hates atheists, whatever it might be, and you would know, okay, I don't want to use that platform because they had to make their biases loud and clear. And now I know that I should go somewhere else if I am any one of those protected categories, right? So that is, I think, a good thing, but that's not really where they stop either. So if we go and we look at their section by section, that was all section C, right? We're getting rid of otherwise objectionable. We're replacing it with some stuff. We defined good faith. We did all these kinds of things. And now we've added some exclusions, right? We don't want to just limit it to these first two paragraphs, which while short, were, were powerful and helped create the internet that we know and love today. We also want to say there are things you could do that get you kicked out of this regime entirely. First, they say subsection C1, that's you're not a publisher of stuff that you have on your platform, shall not apply in any criminal prosecution under state law or any state or federal civil action brought against an interactive computer service provider if the service provider acted purposefully with the conscious object to promote, solicit, or facilitate material or activity by another information content provider that the service provider knew or had reason to believe would violate federal criminal law if knowingly disseminated. Now, this is a really, really narrow class of speech. Right? For the most part, the First Amendment comes in in the Constitution and says you can make whatever speech you want. There are limitations on that, you know, inciting violence, various other terroristic threats, and things that may or may not be constitutional, depending on what the Supreme Court does in any given year. But this says look, you can't get around it by soliciting or facilitating material of another that you knew or had reason to believe would violate federal criminal law. Now, it is a very high standard in terms of legality that they put on this. You have to act purposefully and with the conscious object to have this happen. So you just operating Twitter, if you're the operator of Twitter and some stuff comes on your platform that is potentially a violation of federal criminal law, that isn't a problem. If you advertise to say, hey, give us your best terroristic threats, That would be a problem. I don't actually know what this paragraph is designed to address specifically. Maybe you do. Maybe you can leave a comment to this video where you say, well, actually this happened in the past and this is what they're trying to answer here. I think this is one of those where they go for the easy base, right? Where you say, okay, well, nobody can really get behind Facebook or Twitter or YouTube actually going out with conscious purpose to facilitate uh, incitements to violence, and so now we can say that's a bad Samaritan action. We don't have to do that. And so you are a publisher if you went and actually asked for that information from other other information content providers. You also get a carve out for actual notice. And this actually comes into play in a couple of places. It says you will be potentially a publisher in a criminal prosecution under state law or any state or federal civil action if... Such prosecution or action arises out of a specific instance of material or activity on the service that would violate criminal law, federal criminal law. You had actual notice of it. And now we get into a little bad drafting again. The provider failed to do any of the following. Expeditiously remove the content. Thereafter, report the material or activity to law enforcement or preserve evidence related to the material or activity for at least one year. Now. In this second paragraph, Romanet uh, uh, 2, Romanet 2, I, I, that thereafter is implying to me that this was intended that you had to do all of these things. So understand the scenario. So, in this specific scenario, there's a prosecution of someone, and you had actual notice that they had violated federal law, that somebody actually told you, and we'll see the mechanisms that the Department of Justice actually wants to have in place at the Twitters of the world. And then you failed to do any of the following. Now, as a lawyer, I look at that and say, provider failed to do any of the following means if I did any one of these, I'm fine. So you've got one, two, and three here. You've got the or down here. And then it says, okay, I could remove it. I could report the material or I could preserve the evidence. And I'm just not entirely clear that's what they intended because the thereafter could apply to the notice being given, or it could apply to the removal to report the material or activity to law enforcement, or it could just mean hey, we just have to keep evidence related to the material for a year, which is very easy to comply with. And if, it, if that is in fact the case, there's nothing here, right? This is Twitter or Facebook or YouTube just making sure that they have a preservation policy of a year on essentially everything that goes up on their platform. Now, maybe people won't like that. That'll be a privacy concern for folks. And I think that's a legitimate one, but it's just unclear whether they meant an and or an or there. If we actually go and we look at this specific description, It says, new subsection D2 would remove from immunity an interactive computer service provider under that first paragraph for purposes of a prosecution or civil action related to a specific instance or material or activity that if knowingly disseminated or engaged in would violate federal criminal law if the provider had actual notice of the material or activity's presence on the service and its unlawfulness, yet failed to remove it, report it to law enforcement, or preserve related evidence. There's that or again. So it's implied that it's any one of these. So if I report it, I'm fine. If I keep it for a year, I'm fine. Or if I remove it, I'm fine. In which case, this is a nothing burger, right? This doesn't do really anything. It just adds a lot of language to a law that otherwise maybe didn't need it. You also have a judicial decision carve out here. The overall protective provisions don't apply in any criminal prosecution or civil action if after receiving notice of a final judgment from a court in the United States indicating that such material activity is defamatory under state law or unlawful in any respect, the provider removes or prevents dissemination material within a reasonable time. However, no interactive computer service provider shall be held liable for that removal. But said another way, this looks a lot like what we might see in a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement, which says, yeah, I have to keep it confidential, except I'm not in breach of this agreement if a court orders me to disclose it. Which, again, is the kind of thing that should probably be added back up here with respect to the civil liability itself, right? I don't have liability for this except that I will have liability if I don't respond to a court order, right? So, I mean, I think this is one of those areas where, yes, a court order can obviously mandate that you do something. You don't have liability for your taking that action. And that should probably be more specifically addressed here in civil liability. But again, it's not a problem for most people looking at this. Finally, in this new section, you have this notice mechanism, right? So all of this above relates to actual notice. It actually also relates to actual notice with respect to the judicial decisions. They say that Twitter and Facebook... Shall make available to the public without expense an easily accessible and apparent mechanism for notifying the provider of defamatory or unlawful material or activity as described above. An interactive computer service provider shall not be entitled to assert immunity under that first paragraph if it designs or operates its service to avoid receiving the actual notice of federal criminal material on in the service or the ability to comply with the requirements above. Right? So. If you receive this actual notice, you have to do these various things. If you receive actual notice of defamation and you have a judicial order, you have to do these various things. And you have to have a system put in place to receive that actual notice. If you remember from my COPPA videos, if you were with Virtual Legality back last year, we were talking about COPPA. We were talking about how the FTC was interpreting how YouTube operated. And one of the things that came up in a number of places was that YouTube had every incentive to put its head in the sand because it had more liability for actual notice than it did in any other circumstance. So it tried to avoid that notice. The Department of Justice here is trying to identify those issues in advance and going forward and saying, "Okay, if we're going to require actual notice, you have to put forth a mechanism technologically to go and receive that notice. And if you don't, you lose all of these protections anyway. People have to be able to give notice to you. Uh, Finally, one of the last changes we have here, and one of the broadest, is that there are exceptions to the operation of CDA 230 that say, yeah, you don't have this liability, but it doesn't get you out of all liability. First of all, it doesn't get you out of federal criminal law. It doesn't get you out of IP law. You can still be sued for copyright infringement. It doesn't get you out of state law or privacy law or sex trafficking laws or anything else. Here, the Department of Justice has proposed that it also shouldn't get you out of civil federal statutes or regulations generally. Nothing in this section shall be construed to prevent, impair, or limit the enforcement by the United States or any agency thereof of any civil federal statute or regulation. And then they kind of double dip and throw on a bunch of other civil regulations, anti-terrorism, child sex abuse, cyber stalking, antitrust laws, all these various other civil regulations that probably don't need to be separately called out. This is what we call belt and suspenders language. In the law where they just try to cover the things that are really important to them, even though they've got this broad umbrella language here. But this is one of those areas where Facebook and Google and YouTube and everyone else is likely to look at this and say, wait a minute, the actual breadth of United States regulation and law is monstrously huge. It's one thing to say, we don't get this protection for criminal law. In terms of federal civil enforcement, What does this actually protect us from if you are allowed to bring these actions against us? And in essence, the U.S. government, I think, would say, well, it protects you from individual actions, folks that might bring lawsuits against you for defamation and things along those lines. It doesn't prevent you from getting sued for basically any reason now by the United States government, which, of course, is what you might expect to be proposed by the Department of Justice and the executive branch in general. But this will likely cause a significant amount of heartburn at the big technology companies of the world. And in all honesty, I look at this and say, even I in virtual legality can't summarize the myriad number of ways that this could harm the big tech companies, the increase of exposure of liability that they have with this bit of extra language. It's tried to be snuck in here effectively at the bottom of what they're describing. And I don't know that this is the kind of thing that the big tech giants can really actually go for. So it's, it's one of those that might be being put forth by the Department of Justice as a kind of chip uh, with Congress to say, okay, we're going to walk that back to get some of this other stuff that makes a lot more sense, transparency, some of the other things that we've asked for. But at the end of the day, saying no effect on federal civil law means that it doesn't have any effect on federal civil law. And since it's already got state law coming out of it, what kind of protections does this thing actually afford if you give that language? So feel free to leave your comments to this video if you think that that's a justifiable change, if you think that's a significant problem for the change, uh, as I do. But either way, it's certainly one of those things where a congressional report or the various lobbyists or in-house counsel of these various companies would have to look at very carefully and make a bullet point list, maybe five, six, ten pages that say, here are the laws that you would propose to apply to us. We get out of liability except for these things that the U.S. government can bring And so we are constantly exposed to the U.S. government. Even if we do all these other things that you have asked us to do, even if we accept everything else and we comply to the best of our ability and we have these terms of service that are clear and transparent to everybody, the federal government still says none of these protections apply if we're the ones bringing the lawsuit. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to be a significant problem for this big tech kind of movement. And maybe that's a problem that would be shared, Under a Trump administration or a Biden administration, I have videos in this space that you can check out where I highlight that Biden thinks 230 should go away completely. So this isn't an area of Republican versus Democrat as much as it's an area of politicians, of government power against big tech and technology power in general. And the politicians, the executive class, basically agrees that they want some or all of this gone. And I have a problem with that because I think it does help facilitate the internet. I think it does help facilitate having this discourse because YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and various other places online, forums that you like, can't operate if they're somehow liable, especially to the US federal government, to anything that any user posts upon them. The internet would change massively with the changes proposed here by the Department of Justice. And even though I think some of them are good, a number of them are not. Or for your takeaways, right? Transparency is good. I think we can all agree that better, clearer terms of service, terms of conditions are good. That's one of the reasons I do videos on terms of service here in virtual legality is hopefully to help explain what the heck they say. And when there's a big internet furor over, hey, we're looking at this and, oh, this is a big problem. And I can go in and say, yes, maybe it is a problem, but it's not as big as being reported on. I like helping folks out with that. But certainly if they were more transparent and if they were better written and more easily understandable, that's good for everybody. The civil liability concept, however, is probably overbroad and probably a deal killer from the standpoint of the big technology companies. And to some extent, you have to have them on board. Yes, I know. You look at it and you say, Congress is the one that holds the power. They can make any law they want. That's all well and good, but the big tech giants can make it more difficult, can say, we're going to take these services away, can say the actual industry is going to change in various fashions. And no doubt, Especially if you're cynical, they're going to try to be a part of the regulatory process. They're going to try to be a part of the legal process if this kind of law is ever really moved forward in Congress. Elimination of otherwise objectionable is good. That was always overbroad and provided with a subjective standard, way too much authority for these companies to do whatever they want and get all the political protection, all the cover from civil liability that they could ever get in the world. So otherwise objectionable was always written in a fashion that was just an umbrella term and one that I would have kicked out of any contract that I saw with that language and certainly would have kicked out in the 90s if I was sitting in Congress. So getting rid of it is good, but so is having the terms and conditions control, right? I do think that with respect to most of these items, civil civil liability being the main exception, All of these things are generally a good move. Transparency is good. These companies should still have the ability to control what's on their platform through their terms and conditions. They should have to tell people what those terms and conditions are. They should have to abide by the rules that they set for themselves. So think about the process that you want Twitter. Think about what you want to bind yourselves to and then follow through with it. And if you don't, that's fine. You still aren't necessarily liable. Another law has to kick in There is no liability provided by CDA 230, but you don't get this de facto protection from the US government for having terms and conditions that don't make any sense and that you violate regularly. So put on paper what it is that you want to bind yourself, be bound by it. And if you follow those rules, we will protect you with of course, the exception of this civil liability concept. So those are your takeaways from all of this. I hope you enjoyed this video. We love to do deep dives on these kinds of things in virtual legality. Most recently, we've been doing a lot of deep dives on Epic versus Apple, really going over the documents that those two companies have filed. We also covered things like marketing mishaps and whether or not a lot of people bought an Xbox One when they meant to buy an Xbox Series X on Amazon earlier this week. So if you like any of those things, if you love pop culture, movies, music, television, video games, whatever it is that might be, we talk about them from the perspective of a corporate lawyer, of business and law, hopefully adding a little education and information to your daily ritual. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.